Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club podcast number six. This week discussing men behaving badly. And joining myself, Hey Ho Mooncat and Co. This week are Dr. Christian Troy. Hello. And Boggan Strovia. Hello again. How are we all doing, chaps? Okay, fine, thank you. Spiffing, DCT yourself? Yep, all good. Spiffy Miffy. Um, I actually mentioned in the podcast last week, myself and Ocho going through the post back, that you had been doing some sterling efforts with regards to promoting the sitcom club on Facebook. Well, someone's got to do it. It's quite bizarre investing time into that because it's quite a new venture on Facebook now in regards to being able to put together a very particular kind of campaign. Still figuring out the ins and outs of it pretty much, but it's all good practice. But yes, uh, fingers crossed, and if anyone's listening who likes the Facebook page, please continue to do so, and well, uh, come say hello, come and uh, well, spread the word if you can. And of course, do visit us at sitcomclub.com, and you'll find details there of our forthcoming shows, and you'll find our Twitter handle in there, and our Amazon shop, and, and all manner of lovely things. And that site, of course, will continue to expand. As time goes on, of course, as we mentioned at the top of the show, this is only podcast number six. So yes, indeed, thank you very much for everybody who's been supporting us from the beginning and everybody else who's come along the last couple of weeks or so. If you heard last week's show, that was an atypical show. This is more sort of a standard episode. We're going to take one particular sitcom and dissect it. Now, this particular show, because it's so long, because it spans six series plus specials, this one we're actually going to do over two podcasts. So... As I mentioned, we are discussing Simon Nye's Men Behaving Badly, which ran from 1982 to 1998, crossed channels during its run, underwent the odd cast change and so on. Boggan Strover, just give us your, your sort of initial sort of gut reaction to Men Behaving Badly. How did you enjoy it? I thought it was one of the uh, best sitcoms of the uh, 1990s. When you think of the 1990s, you have... Uh, Father Ted, absolutely fabulous, and sitcoms like that. But Men Behaving Badly was really the first to uh, push the boundaries in language and really what they could get away with, as we'll be discussing later about the um, time shift from an earlier slot to a later slot and, like you said, uh, crossing channels as well. Indeed. Now, DCT, before we actually get into... Series 1, of course, Member Behaving Badly didn't start life as a sitcom. Indeed, it began as a novel by Simon Nye, the creator of Member Behaving Badly, the series and, of course, the book. And what is the most intriguing thing about the book, although I have read it a while ago, and I can't find my copy, rather frustratingly, and it hasn't been reissued, perhaps quite surprisingly, especially in light of the fact that it's been, well, over 20 years now since the series started, it was originally written in 1984, and focuses on Gary and Dermot, Dermot being the predecessor to Tony in the first series, which stars Harry Enfield as Dermot, and then he disappeared and was replaced by Neil Morrissey as Tony for series two onwards. However, in the book, and a little bit of series one, you get the general impression that there's a slight element more of equality between the two characters. There's not a huge amount of laddishness as such it was really not until further down the line they established that and it is interesting to note as well that of course that lad culture is very much associated with the 1990s and so it is a bizarre concept to me that it all started in 1984 when lad culture arguably 
probably had some roots in there somewhere, of course, but for the most part, it was a very different time and place. But if I could come in here, uh, DCT, I'd say that really it was an antithesis to really what was going on at the time with the, um, uh, in the 80s, the new man thing. And obviously Simon and I wanted to write something which was the complete opposite to show that there was another side to uh, men's culture at that time as well. Certainly. I think that there's certain elements of the novel that very much played down the reputation that the characters of the television show would have. I think it's far more toned down in, in that respect. I think to add to the appeal, the concept was to make these characters slowly and surely more out there, more extrovert, which I think they do rather well. But then again, I am slightly biased, of course, because I am one of the rare few I find that I, that I know of who was actually very, very fond of Harry Enfield as the character of Dermot. I think he was, he was underplayed, but I, I say that in a very positive way, but it was more restrained, more realistic, more neurotic, more likable, initially at least, than Neil Morrissey as Tony. I found Tony to be quite irritating, quite annoying, and just quite... Well, I think it reflects in, in Gary's attitude towards him. He, he takes him on board reluctantly in Series 2. I mean, we'll get back to Series 2 in a short while, but even Gary was slightly reluctant in that respect. It wasn't really until further down the line they actually become mates. With Series 1, Harry Enfield, who uh, I believe was dating Beryl Virtue's daughter at the time, and so I believe, as far as I'm aware, that there's a connection to that and as to how he then subsequently got involved with the project. And apparently he really did not like how it came out, uh, how he came out as his character, and that he he just wasn't keen on it at all. And I, I, I really do think that's a shame, and there was only really two references to that character, essentially indicating that he went off to travel to Europe, and then further down the line he ended up getting a job testing the rides at Euro Disney. And we actually find out at the beginning of Series 2, before we introduce Tony, that Dermot is actually the second flatmate that Gary's had. His first flatmate was Clive, who we never see in the shows, but he's often on the other end of the phone talking to Gary. Uh, and I think I'm right in saying that he is behind the camcorder for Gary and Dorothy's planned wedding in Season 6. And I think we might actually even hear him but never actually see him. So Dermot is the, the second flatmate of Gary's. And as you say, yeah, I mean, it, it is very underplayed, and, and Hannah Enfield is he's someone who I don't think he particularly likes to repeat himself. He's done shows in the past, things like Gone to the Dogs, comedy drama with Warren Clark, where he would do one series and then think enough's enough and then move on to something else. Am I right, DCT, in thinking that there was a, a comment, and I remind me who this is attributed to, that said that, Without Harry Enfield, men behaving badly would not have been commissioned. But with Harry Enfield, it would not actually have become the success it did later on following its recasting. Although you say Harry Enfield isn't too keen on repeating himself, I would say that that's what a lot of his character comedy was about, especially with catchphrase culture. Yeah, sorry, I should just explain by that. I mean specifically in his, his acting roles, his sitcom roles. Leading from that, I do find it interesting that he seems least comfortable when he's playing someone closer to himself, which is the impression I get when he plays Dermot. Now, I don't know Harry Enfield as a person, but in contrast, especially at the time to the type of characters that he was playing on his own show, 
it does seem interesting to me that he is uncomfortable, or he said in certainly retrospect that he was uncomfortable playing the character of Dermot, who, as we've said, is underplayed, but that also perhaps suggests that the way he was being played by Herringfield indicated that he was slightly more close to that character than, say, only me or uh, loads of money. So I do think Harry Enfield certainly set a certain tone. Harry Enfield's character of Dermot, the way he plays Dermot, for me was almost a gateway character. He, he almost helps the audience relate a little bit. For me, personally, I found him far more likable than Gary as a character, far more accessible. Gary in the first series, although these traits do remain throughout the series... It's more so exaggerated in series one, perhaps just by contrast next to Dermot. But he's far more arrogant, assumptive, not too fussed at all about bragging about pursuing, potentially pursuing Deborah, uh, more obvious about it at uh, a number of points, and just generally less likable. And perhaps just by contrast, it for me, it made Dermot more likable. Uh, more relatable, financially undermined, especially in comparison to Gary. Gary, at this point, is take a look at the the bet, episode two of series one, where he bets Dermot tickets that he already has to take Dorothy to the opera, and it just there's a lot of arrogance to that. So over a game of chess and, and the likes of that, you have no sympathy with him at the end of that episode. Whereas by huge contrast, not to jump too further ahead, as we'll cover this later on, but then you have Series 4, where not only, very much like in Episode 2 of Series 1, The Bet, where it starts off with Dorothy boring Gary with a slideshow, and you're left by the end of the episode discovering that Dorothy is seeing someone else, and that Gary, and you have no sympathy for Gary, essentially. Series 4, he's convinced that Dorothy is having an affair. He sets up a slideshow having investigated in his own inimitable way, and there is quite a hefty proportion of pathos by the end of the episode. You do feel sorry for him. And I think that goes to show how far the character of Gary evolves between Series 1 and Series 4. I think it also indicates that it needs somebody of the, the acting strength of Martin Collins to be able to communicate uh, Gary's contradictions uh, and the many facets of his character. Obviously, from the first series, it seems like as we know now, Harry Enfield was the uh, main sort of performer and star from doing his own sketch shows and also spitting image, where he was the sort of top banana. But you move into series two, Martin Clunes becomes the main star. Now, it's meant to be the continuation to say, right, Dermot's moved on. So Gary will become the main character, so we're going to push him forward. Yes, and as DCT was alluding to there, there's quite a lot to dislike about Gary. He's got quite a lot of character traits which could really set you against him. And as we've spoken about in previous episodes of the podcast, there is a tipping point. There, There's a point at which you can't have a character really be disliked by the audience, especially if it's going to be a central character. Because for all various characters' faults, and we've spoken about the obvious examples like Captain Mannering is officious and so on, fundamentally you have to believe that they're good people because otherwise you don't want to be in their company for half an hour every week. And 
Martin Clunes manages to get across the fact that although Gaddy can sometimes be very, very selfish, you suspect that he would two-time Dorothy if he had the opportunity. He treats Anthony and George very badly in the office and so on. As time goes on, as the series progress, quite often you will find yourself on Gaddy's side for all his faults, which don't necessarily change. He doesn't become a different person overnight. Bugs, any particular episodes or any other traits about season one that stand out for yourself? Well, I think the um, best episode, really, of season one has to be the first one. It has to be. In establishing where Dermot is in that episode that his uh, current relationship has broken up, because he's slept with his girlfriend's best friend. And Gary, he wants him to move out because he hasn't been paying rent. And Gary's effectively thinking of splitting up with Dorothy. So really, it's a case of, could it be over before it's even begun? But of course, Deborah comes in and Dermot and Gary have got this sort of rivalry that Gary obviously wants a new girlfriend and Dermot thinks, well, I can have her instead. Maybe something that we come back to in a future episode. There's a lot of scope in, not just in final episodes of series, but also in the very first episode of a series, there's a lot of scope for playing with the status quo, because of course, episode one of season one, you need to establish the status quo for the audience, so you've got scopes to sort of go down various different routes and throw the audience a curveball and whatever it may be. And then when you get to the last episode of a particular series, I'm thinking of things like, for example, One Foot in the Grave, where sometimes it was implied that Victor Meldrew had passed away. And it was even kept secret from the newspapers one Christmas. So moving on to season two, DCT, as you said before, uh, Harry Enfield just appeared in series one. We've got uh, the replacement process uh, in episode one of season two. Gary interviewing for new flatmates. Indeed, which was, according to Simon Nye, was directly influenced by the sequence that is relatively similar in the film The Commitments. Simon Nye actually cameos, if I'm not mistaken, as yes. uh, the catatonic housemate, potential housemate. I do like that first episode because it does feel as if there's something missing and you go through some rather speculative what-ifs, which I think the closest in recent years for me was not to, of course, draw away from British sitcom element of, indeed, this is the sitcom club, but in the American adaptation of The Office, when Steve Carell left, they went through a somewhat hefty proportion of what-if speculation, bringing in the likes of James Spader, Catherine Tate, Ricky Gervais, again, and a fair few others. So, obviously, at this point, this perhaps wouldn't wouldn't have been as big a hype for Series 2 at this point, pre-Watershed flagging sitcom. But, certainly, in retrospect, watching it, it's quite an exciting thought. And you do wonder, oh, what if he did pick one of the other ones? Well, if he picked Simon Knight, it might have made things a bit difficult. <laughs> but taking on Neil Morrissey, Neil Morrissey, I must say, for me, he was only really a likable character when he became incredibly pathetic, which didn't really evolve into its entirety until he began to drop everything for Deborah. 
whereas beforehand he came off quite arrogant and quite irritating whereas Gary was still as a character was still trying to evolve as well and so series 2 is this strange transitional period which had the BBC not picked it up wouldn't have even been transitional it would have just been a very strange two series but series 2 generally it's still very much a case of Gary with his new flatmate in the guise of Tony trying to find their feet a bit in terms of character and that status quo between the two characters was yet to be figured out for example there's an episode where in series two Gary is quite bluntly offended or concerned by the prospect of Tony potentially being gay which is a strange thing to consider now but even then, 20 years ago, it's a strange thing to consider that that was a sitcom trope. You might be gay, mistaken identity, and everything. But then again, wasn't there a point at the end of that episode where there was no resolution to that? But yeah, yeah, this, is, this is a thing, because if you consider how that episode would have played out, say, 20 years before, then, depending on who the writers were, depending on how progressive a series it was, the, the person who it's believed may be gay could even be seen as the antagonist, it could be seen as the villain of the piece. If you had that sitcom episode today, then it would be incidental. It wouldn't be what the entire plot revolved around. It would seem like, you know, no one wouldn't really care about whether the uh, character would be gay or not. Like you said, times have moved on in the sort of 20 years from that but now you have to go a bit extra it might have been shocking at that time but to be more shocking as that was you have to uh, push your writing even further now yeah well i think that um what dct was alluding to there was that although gary's homophobia is condemned by dorothy the resolution to the episode is simply the fact that tony turns out not to be gay, and there is no resolution of Gary's homophobia, and that is really the conclusion of the episode. So, I suspect that that particular aspect of it wouldn't really happen today, it would cause unease for audiences today to have one of your principal characters, somebody that you are expected to warm to, display that level of intolerance and have that unresolved at the end of an episode. It probably wasn't intentional at the time, but looking back at that now you could almost argue that the moral point, perhaps, of that particular episode wasn't so much the, the indication that Gary was homophobic, but more so he is the idiot in that episode for not simply asking a question that shouldn't be avoided in the yes. current climate. Yeah, he's scutting around it, he's trying to... Yeah, he's, he's asking him questions about where he's been on holiday and so on, rather than just asking him directly. As you said before, DCT, Neil Morris's character is very different in Series 2 from where you get to in, say, Season 5 or Season 6. If we just remind ourselves as to the culture 
at that time, 1992, the beginning of what's called the lad culture. It's something which is quite often attributed to people such as Paul Gascoigne post-World Cup of 1990. So you've got this, having gone through the 1980s and the sort of politically correct era, now you've got this new decade where men supposedly are reasserting themselves in a way that they didn't feel they could do in the 1980s, but in a very sort of I think it's fair to say that a lot of this new lad business was actually marketing hype. It was very much a lifestyle choice. And so Neil Morris's character in season two, I think, reflects that new lad label very well. He is a womanizer, but he's not a womanizer who is intended to be disliked because you can portray womanizers in different ways and you can portray them in a very, very unlikable way. Or in the, the form of Tony, he can be seen as just a bit of a lad. With Tony, he's got his own self-confidence, really, like you said, a sort of womaniser. That he's really obsessed with himself. He thinks he is a, a success in what he does. Of course, he thinks he's a record executive, but he's only got a record stall in the market so he thinks he's made it already from his confidence he wants to think that he is the big man but really underneath he hasn't got any of that it's bravado and the record stall which we only see in, see in series two is effectively tony's office where gary goes to his office and he can unload his concerns on george and anthea Tony will have his record stall, he has a friend there who's got a fellow stall, and that's their corners where they can go to and share their thoughts with someone else before they then meet again in the flat later on. DCT, are there any particular standout episodes or storylines in Season 2 for yourself? Well, it's funny you should mention Tony's inadvertent office because there is a line in the script book, Simon Nye is quoted as saying that in many respects perceived the characters of George and Anthea to be a sort of Greek chorus where we assess the events of the episode from a different perspective. I completely forgot about Tony getting involved with the record store and speaking to his friend, who I think makes a very, very brief and non-speaking cameo in the filmed footage of the wedding a few series later. But there was an episode that stood out for me in series two, specifically episode five, Going Nowhere, which begins to take that dynamic as it was initially with Gary and Tony, Gary and Dorothy, Tony and Deborah, and mixed it up because you have Gary and Deborah trapped in a lift and waiting for them in Tony's van, Tony and Dorothy. And that's certainly a benefit to put things at a different angle. And if I'm not mistaken, also slightly foreboding in some respects, because if I'm not mistaken, there is quite an awkward moment between Tony and Dorothy, which then is just left in the air. Very briefly, very momentarily, I'm pretty certain that there's just a little jokey hint or reference that, what if? And that really doesn't come to fruition so much further down the line. But it also indicates to me 
at this point, uh, certainly throughout Series 2, as you say, with the evolution of these characters, with the evolution of lad culture, that the series benefited primarily when it eventually went from pre-Watershed ITV to post-Watershed BBC, that it certainly benefited from this lad culture by not just making it about the dynamic between two lads, but also making it about gender, also developing Dorothy and Deborah's characters and making it not so much man versus man or idiot and less of an idiot arguing. It was more so men don't understand women and women don't understand men. And although it is, of course, called Men Behaving Badly... And it is indeed, of course, written by Simon Nye. Let's not forget, it's also produced by Beryl Virtue. And so there is a slight equality even behind the scenes in that respect, which hopefully, if I'm not mistaken, more than likely, was an indication that we were going to get two sides of the coin in regards to not just having two men not understanding women going, and, and making it sexist, because you have the women with more intelligent responses to these two men criticizing them and are occasionally if not coming out with a momentary cynical and humorous line then alternatively they play the straight side and they take the observational sideline to criticize the behavior not just of Gary and Tony but of men generally it's interesting if you have a look at the promotional material for the show, you don't usually get this kind of character development shown in such an overt manner, but if you have a look at the front cover of the VHS release of Season 1, then you have a big picture of Harry Enfield and Martin Clunes, and a very small picture of Caroline Quentin and Leslie Ash. Same thing repeated for Season 2, with Neil Morrissey. Then, I think from Season 3 onwards, the pictures of Caroline Quentin and Leslie Ash start to get bigger and bigger, and eventually, by the time you get to Season 6, then all four have got equal billing on the front cover. As you said there, DCT, more and more the interplay between the four characters, it becomes much more between the four than the two, even though we, we sort of complete every episode with Gary Antonio on the sofa and so on. As time goes by, Dorothy and Deborah become characters in their own right. They are less a foil or a feed for Gary and Tony. They're not always just the level-headed, sensible voice in the room. They have their own characterization, and we see much, much more of that as time goes on. Boggs, any last thoughts on season two before we change channels? It's a hodgepodge of really what the series should be. We don't quite know what Tony's character is yet. Um, You know, we're still finding out that he's a womanizer. He hasn't found his character as such, and neither has Gary to a lesser extent. The chemistry between them hasn't really worked. In my favourite episode of the third series, which is, I think, Episode 3, How to Dump Your Girlfriend. Now, we're still finding out that um, Tony's still got his uh, current girlfriend at that time, Pam, and he wants to dump her, but 
Gary obviously he gets obsessed by uh, cleaning so he uh, does rotor for everyone to say right you do one part of the cleaning you do another and it doesn't seem quite right as of yet that they've actually gelled together as Clunes and Morrissey as a partnership. Mm-hmm. I think that it's fair to say that Neil Morrissey is the sort of representative new lad, or Tony rather is representative new lad, whereas Gary, I think, wants to be a new lad and he sees all that going on and he wants to be a part of it. But at the same time, as we discover later on, then when he actually sort of does engage in laddish culture, Sometimes it's not to his liking. Sometimes it can be a little bit off-putting for him. And but yeah, I really would say that it's um, it's a sort of bridging of uh, the decade, if you get what I mean. Gary's sort of um, own thing, you know, would be sort of end of the 80s and Tony's is bright, new, modern, early 90s. That they haven't really found themselves in their own personality from one being at the end of the decade the other one uh, looking ahead yes so end of series two just to quickly rewind series one was produced in 1991 but was broadcast in 1992 season two then went out later in the year in autumn of 1992 both of them pre-watershed and both of them on itv now the producer of the show thames television became an independent contractor in 1993, the new ITV network centre declined to take a third series of Men Behaving Badly, and so in 1994, season three arrived on BBC One. And not only did it have an extra five minutes available room, keeping with normal BBC sitcom length, but also this time it was post-Watershed. Now, DCT, what particular traits, what particular differences do you notice between series two and three? Well, first of all, I... All I can really hope is that they kept Ted Robbins on as their warm-up man, because, as anyone knows, Ted Robbins is the best. Indeed. But, within the actual show, Series 1, Series 2, Series 3, Series 1 and Series 2, aside from the fact that, of course, pre-Watershed, they were severely limited in embracing the traits that would make it far more successful as a post-Watershed show on the BBC. It gained an edge. It also put the two female characters, as you said before, up front with the two male leads. I think that was certainly a benefit to not just to make it more of an ensemble, but also to have different angles, different perspectives, because at this point it was as as Boggs was saying earlier, despite the fact that Tony had the confidence he was still faking it he was still claiming that he was a a record producer and 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 that actually it was just that of a record stall that he was a part of but then you take away his confidence and he becomes the pathetic character in comparison to gary who has at at the very least the stability of the strong-minded and cynical dorothy Deborah is still very much at this point the girl upstairs, but because herself and Dorothy have become closer as friends, we get more scenes with the two of them. 
and it generally felt tighter and more accessible as a series. And I think as Simon Nye is quoted as saying again in the script book, he says the BBC is a good place for a sitcom for several reasons. You get five minutes more than on commercial TV, minutes in which you can luxuriate a little more in the characters and get to know them. The BBC repeats most of its comedies, so you have two chances to be seen, and the powers that be rarely interfere with the writing process, especially if you have a strong producer, as Simon and I did with Feral Virtue. But also it was very much a case of making an effort to establish Gary Dorothy plots and Tony Deborah plots. And Simon and I said that at this point, it was very much a case of, in one episode, establishing two stories, one primarily visual, the other a relationship problem, and then ending on Gary and Tony chatting on the sofa, with, as I said before, the office scenes almost acting like a Greek chorus reflecting on the events of the main plot. So, essentially, the main difference was structure, and like with most things it's just a case of getting into the rhythm of it and by series three and with the freedom that moving to the bbc as well as post watershed did provide for the series it also arguably gave simon and i a greater opportunity to feel as if it were, he was more in control of the process and it certainly shows in series three and more so in in later series but wouldn't you uh really agree that um with the move to a later time slot that was able to allow um tony's character to change it gave him more situations where where he could look more gormless um in that situation uh i think it's season three where he tries to do a uh, homemade tattoo to impress Deborah. So you couldn't really have that, say, pre-Watershed because you can't really show him sticking a needle effectively in his leg to do the tattoo. Another episode that springs to mind from season three is when Tony's girlfriend at the time has challenged him to get rid of his pornography collection. You could imagine, if it was watered carefully, you could imagine that happening in season two, pre-Watershed, just. But there would be a lot more nudge and a wink, and you wouldn't have anything like the explicit conversation between Gary and Tony with regards to the subject in hand, so to speak. That was not a, not a, a deliberate pun. But that's an interesting episode in as much as the extra five minutes gives Gary and Tony the space to be able to discuss the subject without necessarily advancing the plot too much in that time. And also, of course, that whole conversation just couldn't take place in a pre-watershed setting. DCT, season three, like we mentioned before, got a bit more elbow room, an extra five minutes and so on, so a little bit more space for the secondary characters. Just remind us a little bit about some of the other characters that we see from time to time, some of the other locations that are in there as well. Well, we leave the record stall where it was in Series 2, but we begin to venture furthermore. Although we did see it once in a while in a few scenes in Series 1 and Series 2, we get to venture further into the Crown, the local pub, for Gary and Tony, 
with the landlord, the dribbly landlord, as he's described in the script notes, Les, which is a stereotypical character made far more enjoyable just through pure disgust. And just for example, I can't recall which episode, but as a standout line, when Deborah is quite peckish at the pub and asks Les if he has any food on, he goes, well, I've got a ham sandwich. And she goes, sorry, I don't eat red meat. And he goes, that's all right, it's gone grey. <laughs> and that pretty much sums up the atmosphere there. But that's the thing. The secondary characters wasn't just the likes of George and Anthea, but also Les, but more so certain ways of integrating lad culture. For example, you can almost imagine a list being put together, but what makes a lad? So it covers aspects like going to the pub, getting drunk, occasional reference to sport, but not hugely, but talking about celebrity crushes, and Kylie's quite prominent, if I'm not mistaken, and and the like. And this became far more, once again, presumably with the freedom that being on the BBC post-watership provided. But I like Series 3 for the most part. I am quite fond of Bed, Episode 2 of Series 3, because it is a standard sitcom plot setting it if not all in one location then setting it all at night and mixing things up a bit but i am very fond of the fact that you have a scene of gary walking into boots in piccadilly circus in the middle of the night and it's moments like that on location that i've always enjoyed in sitcoms because it adds to the aspect of of reality there is there are series like father ted for example where it's got one foot in reality and one foot in its own, very much its own world. Uh, then you have the likes of Black Books, which is a direct example, entirely appropriate, because there is an episode in which the character Bernard Black, played by Dylan Moran, gets locked out of the bookshop one night, and it's set overnight with him walking around the area of Bloomsbury. So it's a standard sitcom plot, but I... I do enjoy those. There's something very cosy about that. So I was quite fond of that particular episode. But to be honest, for me, it was Series 3 was still trying to find its feet. Box, any particular episodes from Season 3 stand out for yourself? One which I'm most fond of is the episode Cleaning Lady, um, where Gary becomes obsessed with a newly hired cleaning lady who's been brought in to uh, obviously do the cleaning and get over the uh, squalor of the flat and it also shows um, Tony's uh, that he's got a different job but he wants to use a cleaning lady to also make uh, Deborah jealous that he's finally found someone but it's a fact that obviously it's someone who comes into the um, series who's basically getting between all of the characters that there's this one person who links them all it's Gary trying to pull the cleaning lady and Tony trying to do the same thing but for their own ends they are Tony's trying to do it to make Deborah jealous and Gary's trying to pull her 
So that it's an escape, really, from Dorothy, that he can finally get out of the relationship in the end. Yes. One episode which stands out for myself from season three is Casualties, particularly because it shows Gary at, I suppose you could say, at his worst. He is responsible for injuring George in the office. And George ends up in hospital, of course, the same hospital where Dorothy works as a nurse. So, of course, he's going to find out about the incident and has already been accusing Gary of selfish behaviour previously. And he effectively gets blackmailed by George into George sort of covering up for him, but he has to sort of give in to, to George's demands. And it, it's, it's an interesting episode in as much as Gary is threatened with the possibility of losing Dorothy because of his behaviour. And even though we see Tony's descent into his longing for Deborah as the series go on, and at one point he even says to Gary, you can't release me into the community. In actual fact, Tony is much, much better able to handle himself as a single person, whereas the times where Dorothy is not around, Gary really does go to pieces. And it's quite apparent in this particular episode how terrified Gary is of, of being on his own, to the point where he, he needs to lie. He needs to lie to cover up his own behaviour. And this sort of gives him a, a bit of a scare. And, and he realises that perhaps uh, he's just been too self-centred. Moving on to Series 4, DCT, you said that you felt that Series 3 was still trying to find its feet. Do you think that Series 4 is, is the series where it really reaches its peak? I believe Series 4 is the epicentre of the series as a whole. I can't think of one weak episode in Series 4. It has a nice, strong, rounded arc, where, as opposed to individual matters in each in each episode there's an ongoing situation it just really finds its feet i mean even in the titles of series four episodes they really are hitting their stride babies infidelity pornography three girlfriends drunk in bed with dorothy playing away all these aspects even in that arc even in the titles it's suggesting that certain aspects are being covered in a far broader level with babies you have the onset of emotion and speculation not only as to whether Dorothy and Gary are actually compatible but if they should bring a child into the world episode 2 has a sweet element to it because although on the one hand you have Gary doing these investigations and doing very much what we do as children where we think we want to be a spy or a some kind of fantastical sort of figure that's essentially what gary withdraws into primarily to investigate a serious situation a real life situation so i've always been fond of that concept when you have grown grown men or grown women regressing back into a childlike phase of imaginary job and he does and it turns out he's quite good at it because he ends up finding out the one thing he really hoped to not be true so there's quite a sweet element to that episode three pornography it hits onto a big part of the lad culture the lad culture itself was defined 
for the most part in the 90s in, in Britain by the likes of Loaded magazine, and so, so which was sort of s- arguably soft porn. Soft porn for people who were too feared, as we say up here, too feared to actually reach up and get the soft porn, because <laughs> it was on the middle shelf. But yes, episode four, Three Girlfriends, focuses on not so much infidelity, but about the concept of monogamy, which is sort of the other side of the coin, because it takes a spin on infidelity because the concept of episode two infidelity is being cheated on by your girlfriend whereas episode four is being single enough to have more than one girlfriend so it it takes a spin up not to say that that's in any way better behavior but there is a comeuppance in it before we move on to the episodes dct this is an interesting one three girlfriends is a particularly interesting episode we've spoken before in the podcast about characters being moulded to fit a particular situation rather than the situation fitting that particular character. What do we think of in regards to Tony and Three Girlfriends? Bearing in mind that a couple of episodes previously he's still obsessed with Deborah. In the episode Pornography he is, is now away from Deborah and again in Three Girlfriends he's away from Deborah. Is this perhaps more that we've got plot lines that are going to fit a character, and so Tony's sort of been deliberately separated from Deborah, not for any particular story arc, but just for these particular plot lines, for these particular two episodes, and then in Drunk, then of course he finds himself doting after Deborah once again. Yeah, like with two main characters, you generally need that cross-section where when one is falling down, the other one should be going up, and... Slap bang in the middle of this second episode run of series four, you have three girlfriends where, quite frankly, if you have both Gary and Tony on the downside, then it's going to play out pretty miserably. You get a hint of that downfall for both of them at the end of episode two, but come episode three, it really emphasizes Gary's downfall over Tony's downfall. And of course, episode four, you really do need to keep that consistency because as i said it would be quite a miserable affair to have them both just falling apart at the seams so slap bang in the middle of this you have the cross section point where gary is at the lowest of the low and tony is despite the comeuppance he gets for stringing three women along he is at the highest point he's going to be of this series of series four so you do need that cross point and, as you say, with episode five, Drunk, which is returning the status quo to where it should be to a certain point. And that's why it was a perfect opportunity to do the Drunk episode. An episode, arguably, that is in a perfect position in the series as a whole, because by this point, they could do it. The fact that Simon and I have said that this incident of the after hours we are sailing actually did take place in the crown pub in camden town in 1983 suggests that he had had this plot in mind for a period of time and it's just about getting the right moment so yes there is definitely uh, a lot to be said in making sure that if one of your characters is on the up make sure you put the other character on the downward trajectory and peep show years later is a great example of that Yes. With each series of Peep Show ending with one on a high and one on a low. Yeah. 
And okay, very occasionally you'll actually get both of them in high, and it's, it's quite it's quite warming. It's it's quite uh, exhilarating uh, to to yeah. see that. Yes, free girlfriends. Uh, you do have the status quo re-established right at the end because Gary gets back together with Dorothy. Tony also mentions that himself and Deborah are going to go to what was planned to be Dorothy's engagement party, and I'm going to give it another go. So yeah, there's a nice sort of conclusion after. Uh, all that upheaval for a few episodes. It's a nice sort of uh, getting back to normality. Boggs, would you agree with DCT that season four is somewhat of a, a high point for the series altogether? Yeah, it's by the air date of just coming into summer 1995, across the summer, I think it's really found its feet as a series. We know Gary's traits, and by that point, Tony has got a character by then and around that time that was just past the start of um a new lad culture with magazines like loaded etc and at that point men behaving badly was uh, making the uh, cover of the um, magazines as well so it had found its feet in the schedule and it had found its feet as a uh, production as well which leaves more that Dorothy and Deborah can feel more included. Whereas it was Gary and Tony before Deborah and Dorothy come in more into a plot as equals. Not with really top billing, but they can actually hold their own weight with uh, Gary and Tony. And there's a couple of episodes just to touch on finally with season four. In bed with Dorothy again is being able to utilise the post-watershed slot in a way that they couldn't have done in the first two series, particularly when uh, Gary is basically playing with Dorothy's appendix, which bizarrely they have allowed him to take home from the hospital. And finally we have the season finale playing away. Which is, as you said earlier on DCT, there was a brief moment in series two when Dorothy and Tony unusually are together for a time in the scenes uh, in the van, where you just get a slight hint that maybe there'll be something between them, and of course, come the end of season four, that's exactly when it happens. It was well-timed in regards to being at its peak in terms of the series, but I do still find that episode quite hard to watch. I still think it was a little bit too soon after Dorothy's infidelity in Series 4 to throw this at Gary. But I guess at the same time, it puts a huge conflict in the story and it completely upsets the status quo again, which is what you need to keep it fresh, I suppose. But I do find it a little bit difficult to watch because... But I guess that's because you... At this point, do care a little bit about the characters. There is a little bit of pathos. And, if anything, having seen Gary at such a pathetic down point throughout Series 4, it then seems such a kick in the bollocks to then put Gary in that situation, not only again, but by his girlfriend and his best mate. And even at the end of that episode... I was still wasn't too certain about their friendship anymore. And, of course, 
the affair is alluded to again, perhaps rather tellingly, as far as I'm aware, it's only alluded to again directly at Tony rather than Dorothy, which I think says something of the dynamic that it's easier to forgive the girlfriend rather than the mate who was involved, despite it being, of course, a two-way street. And from what we can gather, it's a strange dynamic at that point. And also, I just generally felt quite uncomfortable at the way that series ended. But then, not to fast forward in time, but I guess that's why the end of Series 5 had to have a major leveling out of the situation. But generally, with Series 4... I think it's also interesting to note that episode one of series four, Babies, was the script that was formed into the plot for the first episode of the US version that proved unsuccessful. And it was the episode In Bed with Dorothy featuring the appendix subplot that more or less did no favours for the US version. Yes. Yeah, it was covered very well in a, a BBC documentary. I read about things about 1997, which they dealt with just how far they were going to go with the, the US version of that, and as much as having the appendix there, how much of that we were going to see, how can how kind of the characters are going to be, and so on. I suspect that were it to have been shown on a different channel, or indeed were they to remake Men Behaving Badly in America now, with a greater amount of freedom, whether it would be on HBO, highly unlikely, but the likes of independent channels such as IFC or indeed a channel like Showtime where you can get away with far more or even FX I do think it could have found its way forward and perhaps improved and developed very much in the way that the American office has in recent years although of course I had a slight demise post Steve Carell but that's by the by but I do think had Member Having Badly been remade about 10 years later, it probably would have lasted a hefty proportion of seasons before petering out. Just to go back to uh, the last episode of season four, when you were saying about how it is such a kick in the nuts for Gary, it is sugar-coated in as much as the audience's response to it. So it's not heartbreaking, it's sugar-coated in as much as Gary has made it quite clear when he's going when he's creative writing course that he sees this as an opportunity to get together with Deborah and obviously she's not interested and then second of all with anybody else who happens to be on the creative writing course so you are already not too well dispositioned to, to Gary before Dorothy and Tony are left alone together in the flat and it's it's that build up that makes it sort of more acceptable so to speak but we're going to come back to that particular trait of Gary's later on. I would say that the difference between Dorothy and Gary, though, is that although Gary throughout the series has implied that he would attempt to sleep with other women whilst being with Dorothy, you never think it's going to really happen because of his persona, and so it's never a genuine threat. That's not to say it's something that is agreed upon, but the difference being that before... Tony and Dorothy sleep together. Any indication that Gary is going to cheat on Dorothy isn't a serious threat. You know that it's 
even if he tries, they're not going to be interested and that it's not going to end well. Especially when you have, bearing in mind, you have, for the most part, Tony is the interception point between any given opportunity that Gary may have to cheat on Dorothy. Whereas post-Tony and Dorothy sleeping together, that opportunity, for the most part, as far as I'm aware, only really is confronted the one time at the end of Series 5. And then after that, it's no longer considered a conflict because it's a kind of one-all scenario between the characters. And I think that arguably means that post-Series 4, the dynamic between the characters is ever so slightly in Gary's favour. Yes, well, we'll, of course, we will come on to Season 5 next week. Boggs, any last thoughts on Season 4, or indeed any of the episodes or series that we've discussed today? I think that uh, Season 4 was the ideal season for men behaving badly. It reached its peak in 1995. The four characters, as they were, with the um, playing away episode, it needed something like that to happen, because we know about Gary's sort of wanting to sleep with other women, but... It had to happen eventually that Tony and Dorothy had to get it out of their system by sleeping together. And it was a certain thing that it gives an awkwardness, but it's also with um, Dorothy, it shows that she can sleep with Tony, but to Gary it's almost like well you slept with him okay we'll move on yes now the reason that we are going to curtail at this point of course is that we've still got another two full series and we've got a trilogy to come in Christmas 1998 so for the first time on the podcast we're actually going to split a series over two different shows so we will be picking this up again next week and we'll be discussing Men Behaving Badly season Five, six, and the Christmas trilogy. A little bit of housekeeping just before we conclude today. Thank you very much indeed, first of all, for downloading the podcast. Welcome to anybody who's joined us for the first time. There's already five podcasts in the canon. If you want to have a look back on iTunes, uh, you'll see us discussing Up Pompeii, Still Game, Manning and Jeff, and Chalk, and also Ocho and I chatting about some sitcoms that are around the uh, the moment and answering some of your feedback as well and don't forget of course you can find us at sitcomclub.com we're at this sitcom club on twitter you can find us on facebook as well and of course uh, the sitcom club is produced in association with cooked and bombed so don't forget of course to uh, find us on there if you can gentlemen it's been a pleasure as always thank you very much indeed for your time this evening and hmm, how will this story end we wonder we shall find out next week in the sitcom club, Men Behaving Badly, part two. <laughs>